Welcome to FRT, the IIF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Natalia Bailey, and today we will be discussing machine learning with Dr. Bill Kahn at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. Bill has his MA in statistics from Berkeley and his PhD in statistics from Yale. He has been working in the field for many decades. His working machine learning began in 1981 when Bill took the first ever machine learning course. It was given in the Berkeley Statistics Department by Leo Bryman, the inventor of machine learning. Of particular note, Bill has run model risk management functions at Capital One and AIG and model development functions at Fannie Mae and most recently at Bank of America. Bill, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Over the last few years, machine learning has started to touch and influence nearly all aspects of the financial sector. Back in our FRT episode three, me and my co-authors on the IF report and the use of machine learning in credit risk discussed the main findings of our report where we interviewed 60 firms, 58 banks, and two mortgage insurers on their adoption or exploration of machine learning in credit risk. We also discussed some challenges as well as the potential benefits. And in the challenges, there's an ongoing journey for the industry and regulators together to understand these technologies. Bill, to get things rolling, maybe you can help us understand more clearly just what machine learning is. Hello, Natalia. Thank you for inviting me here to talk a little bit with you. Machine learning certainly has been getting lots of play, both in the technical literature and and the lay literature. And I think that probably there is still confusion as to what is machine learning and how is it different from sort of classical modeling. To make that distinction clear requires understanding sort of what's the core purpose of of any statistical model. And it's to separate the signal from the noise, to, to be able to identify that which is going to repeat from that which is just sort of stray blips of this particular set of observations. The key way that machine learning makes this distinction, and this is all machine learning algorithms, this is what defines the machine learning concept, is you hold out some of your data that you get. It's, it's a random holdout. There are half a dozen or a dozen different interesting ways of holding that data out. But basically, you put half of your data away. And then on the remaining half, you look at a sequence of increasingly complex models. And then for each of those models, you evaluate it on how well it actually performs on that random holdout. And being a bit simplistic, but basically correct, you then pick the model that works best on that holdout sample. So it's a fairly basic idea, and and it was Leo Bryman that first came up with it in 1980, 1981. And there are many variations as to how you do the random holdout and what sequence of increasingly complex functions you explore, but all of them basically have that core characteristic. Great. So if we talk a little bit about what are the risks that you see associated with machine learning, Maybe you can shed some light on those. The real risks associated with machine learning are no different than the risks associated with all of multiple regression modeling. Machine learning is just a particular form of multiple regression. So the deep risks associated with machine learning are the same as always, which is, am I working on an interesting problem? And have I selected good dependent and independent variables? And a slew of very common stuff. Now, there are times when the technical details that are going into machine learning really turn out to matter. Not often, but sometimes. 
common problems that people will talk about will be heterogeneity and independence and overfitting. And typically, those are not really big problems in machine learning. It's the classical issues that are much more the big problems. So if I stop you for a moment, um, when you say overfitting is not a big risk, when we were doing this report on machine learning and credit risk, several of the firms we talked to mentioned overfitting as a risk. What are your thoughts on that? Let me be clear what I technically mean by overfitting here. It does not mean how well you predict future sets of data that maybe got generated through some other data generation mechanism from the data that you actually did collect. Overfitting in this technical sense means how well you will predict more data from the same data generating mechanism. The reason it's not a problem is that it turns out to be extremely hard to overfit data if the data has a particular characteristic of the rows are independent of each other. The error term of each row is independent. And that's a different concept from the columns of the data being independent of each other. But if the rows are basically independent of each other, it turns out that the Gauss-Markov theorem, which is the core theorem that is the foundation of multiple regression modeling going back 200 years, it says that you have unbiased estimates for your parameters and unbiased predictions, regardless if you've added too many extra terms or not. Now, if you go to a real extreme, you can end up with slightly lower efficient estimates, but the estimates still do make sense. So if you had just three data points and you're fitting a two-variable linear regression, yeah, you only have one extra degree of freedom and you're going to be overfitting. But the moment you've got 10 data points, you can fit a two-variable multiple regression and you're not overfitting anymore. Now, if it turns out the rows of the data are not independent of each other, now there really is a significant risk that starts showing up that machine learning will end up making predictions, and the predictions will validate correctly on the random holdout. But in practice, they will not actually be near as good predictions as you, you think they are going to be. This problem of lack of independence of the error terms associated with the rows of the data is a overfitting problem that machine learning does not yet know how to manage. But it's really quite common, and certainly in the industries that I'm familiar with, such as banking, for one to have hundreds of extra rows of data, or even hundreds of thousands of extra rows of data. You might have a row of data for, for every loan or for, for every small business. And in a situation like that, you really can't overfit the data, even with reasonably aggressive use of machine learning. Thank you so much for clarifying that for us. If we move a little bit to talking about explainability, one of the key challenges that was uncovered in our machine learning and credit risk report was the issue of explainability, but not just for the banks that were getting started and using machine learning techniques, but for regulators and supervisors as well. In our FRT episode 17, we discussed this issue with Chisu Lyons, the VP of Analytic Ventures at FICO. But I would like to, to touch more on this issue with you Bill, can you speak a, little, a bit more about the special complexity of interpretability? The concept of interpretability, of the sensibility of any result, a statistical result or, or any other result, depends to a tremendous degree on the background of the individual. Folks with different 
experiences, uh, frameworks, incentives, loss structures, just intellectual capacity. Something that makes sense to one person may not make sense to another. So this is becoming a bit abstract, but let me go ahead and break the interpretability question down into two pieces. First, can we describe what the model is doing? And second, how is it doing it? Now, the first turns out to be pretty straightforward. There are many ways of approximating the output of any complex system. There are a bunch of one variable at a time approaches, such as partial dependency plots, individual conditional expectation plots, aggregated local effect plots. And all of these give you a good sense as to what happens if you change one variable and don't change any of the others. Another very common way of trying to understand what a model is doing is you can approximate the output of the model with some function that's in the space of functions that we think we do have interpretability on. A classic example might be a linear additive model or a binary tree structure. So to describe what the model is doing, there are very good tools for being able to do that. Regarding the second point as to how the model is doing the work, this actually requires pretty deep statistical and technical mastery of all the pieces. You can sort of think about the question, how does a radio work? Or how does a light-emitting diode work? Or, or any piece of modern technology, we ask, well, how does it work? And of course, the experts in the field understand every level of the technology inside of machine learning. Uh, there are experts that understand each of the inside detailed pieces, and each of them requires deep specialization. But before we get too far into thinking about what interpretability means for a machine learning model, I want to go back and point out that this has always been a problem, interpretability. So even if you go back to, say, linear additive multiple regression, even two-variable linear additive multiple regression, it turns out that most people have a very weak intuition as to what's really happening inside of this simple situation. Now, I know we can all say that, well, a coefficient is how much the prediction changes if the input changes by one unit and the other variable doesn't change at all. So we can use those words, but really getting the intuition as to what that means can be hard. So an example would be with just three variables, you could have A positively correlated with B and B positively correlated with C, but A negatively correlated with C. And it's amazing how hard it is to get one's intuition into this. Certainly, a lay person will not understand that. And even if you are professionally trained, it can be hard to understand what this three-dimensional grid of data points looks like and why it has that property. There are other variants of this. A can be positively correlated with B. However, for every value of C, A is negatively correlated with B. This is sometimes called Simpson's paradox. So there are lots of examples, even in very simple multiple regression, where we do not have good intuition for what's happening. Uh, people can almost intuit what's happening in three space. The moment you get up to four space or more, it becomes nearly impossible. Further than that, the understanding as to what probability is becomes very hard to intuitively understand. An example would be the Monty Hall paradox, where it takes quite a while for most people to understand why it is you should always switch boxes and uh, not stay with your current box. 
So there are lots of examples where human intuition is simply not adequate for solving important technical problems. And that's why we use advanced mathematical technologies. Thank you, Bill. How about collinearity? When is it material? Collinearity is when the variables being used in the prediction are correlated with each other. That is a completely different concept from when the error terms of the rows are correlated with each other. It's very important to keep those two ideas separate. Now, for engineering prediction problems, for business prediction problems, collinearity has never been an issue, not at all, and it still isn't. This is, again, a consequence of the Gauss-Markov theorem from 1809. Uh, If you look at it, there are no assumptions whatsoever in Gauss-Markov on the correlation of the predictors. You end up with minimum variance, unbiased estimators regardless. So for the purposes of prediction, collinearity is irrelevant. At times, we want to use our models for something more than prediction. We want to use them to understand scientific causality. And indeed, collinearity is a big deal and requires much deep thinking about what it means to understand causality. What we often want is an understanding of the counterfactuals. What I mean is traditionally in this situation, we apply treatment A, and we want to have a viewpoint of what would happen if we applied treatment B. So that's the counterfactual. We didn't actually apply treatment B, but we want to have a viewpoint as to what the consequence would be. The only real way of knowing what would happen if you did B is now and then you got to go look, you got to try it. This process of actively trying alternatives, this is called testing or or experimental design. Indeed, there's entire and sophisticated field of statistics, statistical experimental design, sometimes called design of experiments or DOE. And DOE is the most efficient possible way one can learn about the impact of trying a new idea. And it's routinely 10 or 100 times more informative than simple A-B testing. Companies that use DOE are invariably market leaders. And other than using experimental design, it is very hard to get to causality from simply using historical data. An example of this would be you might well have regional market executives observing what competitors are doing in their market. And when the competitor is running a promotion, they choose to lower their price so as to avoid losing too much market share. Now, if we come back later and go ahead and analyze the data, we see that lower price is now going with lower market share. And indeed, that is historically what's in the data, but that is an extremely poor causal understanding as to what's happening. And you might think, well, I'll go ahead and I'll introduce all the necessary covariates into the regression and normalize them out. And that turns out to be virtually a fool's errand. It is extremely difficult to do. For nearly all companies, the right path is to establish causality. While regression can help, you really have to get to it with active experimental design. If we move and talk a little bit about this fear that we've heard about self-learning systems, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Modelers have always been updating their models. The social economic world we live in, it's constantly evolving. And so for our models to be useful, they have to evolve as well. Now, of course, we are at risk of updating too slowly. If you want it to have a viewpoint of how consumers are using Facebook or the internet and you're using five or 10-year-old data to do it, you are using an obsolete data set and clearly you have to update your model. On the other hand, we're also at risk in updating our models of updating it too quickly. We use the day of data 
and we think that the whole world has changed and we don't give any weight to the previous week or, or the previous month. So how fast we update our models has, has always been a problem, but it turns out it actually gets worse than that because we change what it is we do as a result of the model. We can find ourselves chasing our own tails. What that means would be putting a new policy, which would say market to these people and not to those people, which means that going forward in the future, we never get the data of what would happen if we had marketed to that other group of people. And as a result, the model loses the ability to change its mind. And that's what I mean by chasing its tail. And the model can end up having you market to a smaller and smaller and ever shrinking group of people or having an ever more constrained credit policy. It can actually go the other way as well, where you have an ever loosening credit policy and you end up driving yourselves into a, a difficult environment that way. So a good algorithm for balancing this earn-learn trade-off, meaning we want to use the model we have, be able to make money now, but we want to be able to continue learning what might be better in the future. A good way of balancing that was actually worked out in the 1930s by a guy named Thompson. It's called Thompson Sampling. In the top modeling shops right now, shops like Google and, and others, they're all running variants of the Thompson Sampling algorithm. With modern computing, we can now solve the Bayesian problem that Thompson set up. So we can't fully put our machines on autopilot, whether these are modern machine learning algorithms or old world multiple regression models. Uh, they can't be fully on autopilot. We get algorithm-induced problems, and we have lots of examples of that, you know, like stock market semi-crashes that we've had over the years. That's a result of having too much confidence in models and that they have run us downhill. There's a general problem that all feed-forward and feedback systems need to be appropriately damped. They need to have appropriate delays. They have to be robust with respect to the many deviations from the mathematical simplifying assumptions. It's not a problem unique to machine learning. So if we go, maybe just take a step back, you said earlier that machine learning has all the same risks as multiple regression. There must be some special concerns. You know, there are some special problems that machine learning has. Let me go ahead and name three of them. Uh, the first, I made a quick reference to it before. This is hierarchical data. So this is when the rows are not independent of each other. And this is surprisingly common. Uh, for example, in classical statistics, there are nested models, split plot models, longitudinal models, time series models, random effect models. There's a large literature inside of classical statistics of how to handle hierarchical structure. Machine learning has not yet learned how to do the appropriate random sampling necessary to be able to regularize the data appropriately when it's hierarchical. Problem this is, is that many people who are now working on machine learning are not trained classically and so do not have the ability to recognize a time series structure or a geographic hierarchical structure. And as such, they'll go ahead and throw a machine learning approach onto data of this form and will produce a result which they have high confidence in, but they shouldn't have high confidence in. And there is nothing in the data analysis within machine learning that will indicate to them that they've made an important mistake. I'm close to this particular problem. I and my team have made this mistake, and it's only through careful review that, that we've been able to pick up on it. Second is just the deployment of models is always hard. 
if your model is just y equals beta 1x1 plus beta 2x2, you can put beta 1 and beta 2 into most any piece of computer code and get it to execute correctly. But a modern machine learning algorithm is routinely 100,000 lines of code or or actually in the, lar in the new larger versions, it might be 10 million or 100 million lines of code, is the machine learning model. So implementing these models is serious IT and computer science and needs a whole level of engineering brought to bear to make sure that execution matches intent. And last is uh, software reliability. Now, this has always been a problem in all statistical modeling. As recently as 30 years ago, the multiple regression software that was available was by and large often not reliable. There were hundreds of companies producing multiple regression software, and much of it failed and failed silently, producing not just wrong results, but dramatically wrong results without telling you. That has generally been weeded out now, and dozen or score of remaining major players now all have reliable multiple regression software. That weeding out has not yet happened on machine learning software. There are, again, many hundreds of vendors and providers, open source and commercial of machine learning software, all of which in some example runs quite well, but nearly all of which fail in multiple corner cases and fail catastrophically it can be extremely difficult for a beginning user to know whether or not this software is reliable or not reliable. So this is a difficult time of, of all new technologies. I imagine if you go back to 1800 when steam boilers were just coming along, every now and then they would explode and kill people and sink boats. And this technology also is currently still in that dangerous phase. So those are three risks that I think are special in machine learning. You've touched a number of important topics so far, but I want to pick a little bit on your experience. Maybe you can talk to us about your experience with financial regulators and machine learning. Over the decades now, I've had the opportunity a dozen times or more to work with my regulators on either directly machine learning algorithms or aspects of machine learning algorithms. My primary regulators have been the OCC and the FRB. And both of them repeatedly over the years seem to have the, exactly the right degree of engagement and caution. OCC researchers published a paper two or three years ago now where they evaluated machine learning and credit risk and ended up concluding that it appeared to be an extremely powerful and promising technology that would certainly help banks and help the people that the banks are serving. It's a win-win technology when done well. So they have been very supportive of my work in the field. That being said, the regulators want us to be extremely responsible users of any technology that we use, including machine learning. They are scared that amateurs in the field or, or early beginners will just start putting whatever data they have into the machine learning algorithm that happens to be sitting on the company's computers and start trusting the results. And indeed, that is an absolutely correct concern, and I, I think they should have it. For example, if you transform your variables with splines, something we've all been doing for years and years, uh, the regulators expect you to really understand what you've done and why you've done it and what the risks are. If you build a time series model with ARIMA tools, the regulators are expecting appropriate understanding of what you're doing and co-integration analysis and pre-whitening 
you cannot simply put raw time series data into the model. If you take the output of your model and use it downstream in a nonlinear model, like an MPV model, say, uh, they expect you to understand Jensen's inequality and that you're going to properly manage the convexity of the system and not simply propagate an expected value. So in on and on, the regulators expect us to be smart, responsible users of every technology. And my experience has been that they want the same for us in machine learning. Where the regulators have directly examined my pure machine learning models, they have had all kinds of insightful comments that are generally applicable to modeling, but no particular concerns with it having been a machine learning model. Finally, Bill, where do you think machine learning is going? <laughs> where is it going? What's our future? Well, multiple regression is now 120 years old. And even though that seems sort of old, we are still discovering more and more places where multiple regression can be useful and productive. Perhaps some of the most exciting areas is actually in recent sports data. Some of the stuff that I've been reading about going on in basketball and football and soccer is just absolutely amazing, amazing work, all of which broadly is in the multiple regression framework and, and therefore often using machine learning. So one of the things that'll happen, continue to happen, is we're just going to apply multiple regression tools uh, more broadly. Second, we're going to be increasingly using highly computationally intensive versions such as machine learning And so GPU grid computing is going to become more and more common. I can easily imagine some future state when you click on the button on Excel and automatically in some back-end cloud, some set of GPU grid spins up on your behalf and actually does the calculation. And that just sort of disappears into the woodwork. We, we don't even really realize that that's happening. Eventually, the statisticians will work out how to combine machine learning with hierarchical data. It is a doable solvable problem. We just haven't solved it yet. That's one of the points in our future. We are increasingly seeing today that the information we want does not sit in the data we have. No matter how fancy your multiple regression, the information just isn't there. As we become more aware of this, we're going to be increasingly shifting over to routine experimental design. So I think that the wedding of modern experimental design and Bayesian versions of it, such as Thompson sampling, will be increasingly combined with machine learning. Thank you so much for sharing your views and your experience with us today. You've really made many points simple and clear to us. It's a pleasure to have you on FRT. The IF published in November last year a thematic series paper on explainability and predictive modeling, where we had input from several IIF members. And we recently published the second paper in our thematic series discussing bias and ethics in machine learning. I can foreshadow a little on the added research that we have coming. We will have a further paper on some expanded recommendations on how supervisors and regulators can support adoption of machine learning. And we're also currently working on a follow-up to our machine learning and credit risk report that was published in March 2018 among the participating members to refresh some of the key measures on that report. In June, we will have a debrief on our upcoming machine learning roundtable in Frankfurt, and my colleague Brad Carr will be visiting CB CEO Johan Torgeby in Stockholm, where he will discuss Sweden's increasing cashless economy. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and now on Spotify and Google Play. I'm Natalia Bailey, and thank you for joining us on FRT. 